Howdy. Uh, this here old show may contain some cussing, some uh, discussions of a non-biblical nature, and if that sort of thing does not sound like something you'd be interested in listening to, then I would suggest you turn around right now, fella, and uh, just head out the other way. Saloon's down the street. They got some nice girls there. They must be destroyed on sight!
Okay, we're back, and we are now at episode 76 of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast, and I'm your host, Lee Russell, joined by my co-host, Daniel Harper, and uh, Paul may be joining in here pretty soon. We're expecting him, so he should be here, but uh, how are you doing, uh, Daniel? I was just wondering if you would call me Harmonica or Cheyenne today. Harmonica or Cheyenne? Uh, or am I Jill? Do I get to be Jill? I would love to be, be Jill. You can be Jill if you want, yeah. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Awesome. I don't know which one I'd be. I'd, I'd like to think I'm not cold and emotionless as uh, Harmonica, so I'd probably be uh, Cheyenne. Or uh... so. I mean, I, th- I think given the choice, you'd, even though Cheyenne dies at the end, I think you'd rather be Cheyenne. I think he's you know, clearly the the more likable figure, at least. You know. Yeah, uh, and if you hadn't guessed by that, and of course the title of the podcast, we are uh, finishing off our initial look at spaghetti westerns here in this episode, and we're going to be looking at Sergio Leone's. Once Upon a Time in the West from 1968. Before we get into that, we have just two little pieces of house cleaning here. Two comments to get through. Uh, our friend, the Beer Zerker, who was with us on our Zardos episode, in response to our last episode, said he can't handle this non-biblical discussion when I'm this drunk, you assholes. Okay. Non-biblical? I, I, I think he's playing off the... Uh, the little intro I made for the Spaghetti Western series where uh, there, there may be discussions of a non-biblical nature. I see, I see, I see. I get it, I get it. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because he doesn't, he doesn't strike me as uh, the religious type, so... Unless we need to get him back on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that, was, that was fun. And uh, we have C.B. Falls saying on the same episode, very excellent and interesting podcast. So there you go. Yeah. Very, very brief, concise. Uh, concise, generic. But uh, mm-hmm. we always love we always love comments. Yes, uh, so thank you very much, guys. Not sure if you have anything you want to mention that you've watched in the last while, there, Daniel. But uh... um, nothing, nothing uh, worth really talking about. I've been rewatching some uh, Bob's Burgers lately, um, and uh, okay. ironically, I will I will mention there is an episode which uh, kind of does. Um, where Bob has uh, this thing with one of his daughters, where they're watching um, old spaghetti western series called Banjo. Where the elite character uh, strings a banjo and you know kills people. It's uh, it's, <laughs> you know, it feels very uh, connected to the Django uh, Sabata kind of school. So uh, it's it's a fun episode. Uh, just wanted to uh, mention that just because uh, you know it's fun and nice. a little bit little bit next generation. But uh, I haven't I haven't really had the energy to watch a lot of movies lately. You know, maybe next week we'll see. Yeah, the only thing I've been watching lately, uh, other than um, the movies for the podcast, has been two TV series. Uh, I just started binge-watching The Luke Cage on Netflix. Very good. I don't think anyone's surprised to hear that, though, considering the quality they've been putting out. We'll say the soundtrack, and it's fucking amazing, though. Uh, it helps it stand out from all the other series so far, uh, and it's just really goddamn good so far, so uh, I've been enjoying it. Um, yeah, I haven't gotten a chance to start that yet. Maybe maybe over the weekend we'll uh, start We'll start watching that, because I really like Jessica Jones. Um, mm-hmm. Although I still haven't seen Daredevil. I need to watch Daredevil, too. But uh, Yeah. And the other thing, I've been rewatching uh, Deep Space Nine on Netflix. So. <laughs> we both have watched a little Star Trek lately. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm about to finish season four of uh, Next Generation, so uh, one of these days I'll start. I'll probably I might go back and rewatch the original series and then start Deep Space Nine. We'll see. But uh, you know. just rewatching Deep Space Nine, it just kind of confirms for me that it's probably my favorite sci-fi uh, series of all time. It's definitely my favorite Star Trek series. It's held up better, uh, especially in its early seasons, than any other series I can think of in, in Star Trek, really. It's just consistently a lot better than in, than the, any of the other series, as far as I can uh, recall. Except for the Ferengi episodes. There's like one good Ferengi episode, and then the rest of them are all 
absolute garbage. But well, the fringe are kind of a one note species, right? I mean, it's kind of like once you once you've done them once, you really can't focus on them at all without making them not what they are. Yeah, space juice. Or you make them, or you make them uh, figures of fun. You know, you yeah. kind of turn them into jokes. But then, like, yeah, then I mean, they're they're definitely I don't know. There's a lot of conversation we can have about <laughs> the way the Ferengi are portrayed. But yes, um, they are they are a bit racist caricatures. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, uh, I, I've loved it. Uh, just just revisiting it, and of course, I wasn't I haven't been like binge watching through season by season. I've just been basically picking out all the quote unquote great episodes season to season for the most part. Although I've been jumping ahead and like watching the Dominion War arc, which was just like brilliant all the way through and uh, yeah, really good stuff. Yeah, for I me, I, I kind of stopped watching because uh, DS9 kind of came out, or yeah, DS9 came out during that period where I didn't have access to a television regularly. You know, so basically, I started watching it kind of bits and pieces here and there, and like in syndication, and I have no idea like how much of it I've watched. So um, when I rewatch it, I, I mean, a lot of it I'll watch for the first time. So I'll just start from the beginning. But um, I know Shana started watching it, my wife started watching it. And uh, was really enjoying it. You know, she just kind of bounces around between TV shows. So, you know. yeah. Oh, the new season of Bones came out on Netflix. So, of course, she uh, decided she had to, uh, uh, you know, watch that. Um, thankfully, she did that mostly while I wasn't uh, while I was at work, while I was at home. So, she's uh, she's very uh, very very merciful, she, I guess. She she knows how dumb it is. She just enjoys dumb television, and it's fine. I have no like. I love her. It's great. Um, yeah. I have no complaints. Yeah, but she doesn't make me watch it, so it's fine.
Okay, so I guess we could move on to our movie. Uh, Paul jumps in, he jumps in. I know he intended to, so uh, if you hear all of a sudden a microphone rattle in the in the podcast, interrupting things, that's Paul and my shitty editing. So there you go. Once upon a time... He's probably fast-forwarding it right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it'll take him about an hour and a half. We joked that uh, fast-forwarding this movie would basically take you the length uh, of time to watch a regular movie. Once upon a time in the West from 1968... Directed by Sergio Leone, written by Sergio Donati, Sergio Leone, Dario Argento, and Bernardo Bertolucci, starring Claudia Cardinelli as Jill McBain, Henry Fonda as Frank, Jason Robards as Cheyenne, Charles Bronson as Harmonica, Gabriel Frizzetti as Morton, the Railroad Baron, Paolo Stoppa as Sam, Woody Strode as Stoney, Al Mulock as Knuckles, Jack Elam as Snakey, Keenan Wynn as the Sheriff, uh, Frank Wolf as Brett McBain, and Lionel Stander as the Barman. And uh, Paul has jumped in. So how are you doing, sir? Ah, no. Good, good. Fell asleep. Sorry. 
That's all right. Daniel, we can move right on to the synopsis. Once upon a time in the West, there was a town called Flagstone. Into this town, there was a man named Harmonica, Charles Bronson, for whom three hired killers, portrayed by recognizable Western actors, are waiting. Harmonica dispatches them instantly, of course, since he's the hero. In the next scene, we're introduced to a lovely family headed by widower Brett McBain and his two children, a boy and a girl. Just as dinner is about to be set out, shots ring out, and the young girl is instantly killed. Seconds later, the father is also murdered while dragging himself to his gun. Shadowy figures emerge, approach the young boy as yet unharmed, but when one of the men uses the name of the leader, Frank, in front of him, there's no longer any going back. The boy must be killed. And he is, in Frank's cold blood. Frank is portrayed by Henry fucking Fonda. On the next train arrives the gorgeous and passionate Jill, who is soon revealed to be the blushing bride of McBain, and upon learning of the murder of her entire new family, decides to stick it out anyway. In a haberdashery on the way to the house, she encounters both Harmonica and Cheyenne, Jason Robards, who is being framed for the murders of her family. There's a bit of a macho pissing match between Cheyenne and Harmonica, but they have a way of respect for one another. One more chess piece to lay on the board, and that's Morton, the railroad tycoon seeking to run his track all the way to the Pacific Ocean. He's been crippled by tuberculosis, however, and can barely move without assistance himself. But it's his money that is motivating Frank to take care of the widow by any means necessary, as the Sweetwater property runs right along the planned track of the railroad, and is perfectly positioned to make a killing off the incoming trade. Martin, of course, wants to share that wealth with no one. Thus set into place, the rest of the film consists largely of motive forces working their magic. Morton wants to make a deal with Jill, while Frank wants to take over from Morton and grab the land for himself. Cheyenne is smitten with Jill and wants to clear his name, and Harmonica, well, he has a bit of a backstory himself with the evil bastard Frank. Hmm. There's a stellar action sequence on a train, one of the most realistic rape sequences ever put on film. Alliances formed, then broken, an auction, and an arrest, an old crippled man dying with his nose an inch above disgusting brown water. Somewhere in here, Cheyenne takes a bullet and is slowly bleeding out through the rest of the film. And then the duel between Frank and Harmonica, in which it is revealed to the audience that Frank murdered Harmonica's brother cruelly, and had originally given Harmonica the musical instrument from which he got his name. Frank is vanquished, and the stoic man leaves the new town, the soon-to-be-dead Cheyenne in tow, while Joe goes on to build the civilization that will make the West worth living in for those of us who do not live and die by the rules of frontier justice. Nice. Well done. After Sergio Leone's Dollars Trilogy, and he was looking to move on from Westerns, actually, he was he got a deal with Universal, or no, United Artists it was, he got a, he got a deal with. And he was instantly interested in making uh, Once Upon a Time in America, but they did not want him to make a gangster picture first. They wanted him to make another Western, and they threw a ton of money at him and said, you can basically pick and choose the actors you want. So he's like, okay. I'll go back and I'll make another Western and I'll basically make the Western to end all Westerns. And I think that's kind of what he did. <laughs> and he, and he did. Yeah. <laughs> he, he went and grabbed every sort of iconic Western face he could think of that he could uh, get a hold of. He did originally want to bring back Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef and Eli Wallach. He wanted to bring them in at first in, in various roles uh, as, as stars. Then he had the idea of maybe making them the three guys who, show up to meet uh, Harmonica when he gets off the train as a sort of a nod to the past series and the sort of changeover from that series to what this uh, movie was supposed to be about. None of that really happened. It all fell through, so he picked other iconic faces. He got the chance to actually shoot in Monument Valley, which was which was nice. He did do some shooting still in Spain, uh, although it did have dirt from Monument Valley trucked overseas just to make it more, look more authentic. This is this is what happens when you give Sergio Leone some fucking money. Like that's you know. He goes on to make this 
big sprawling near three hour fucking movie in some cases using actors he wanted to use back in the past but uh could not afford at the time so he gets henry fonda who apparently showed up with the big black mustache to make himself look more villainous and uh, sergio leone uh, apparently spazzed out at that and <laughs> put a stop to that right away enough blathering about uh, on sort of the uh pre-production here daniel what are your first uh, kind of thoughts on this one <laughs> this is a. Uh... One of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, there's just, I, you know, I just had to lay it out there. I'm really fucking glad Clint Eastwood isn't in this because I know he was uh, kind of the first choice for harmonica. <laughs> as much as I like Clint Eastwood and a lot of stuff, I don't think this is the role for him. I'm, re- I think this is Charles Bronson's real like. This is for me what Charles Bronson is as an actor. Mm-hmm. I think he's phenomenal in this. I love Jason Robards for his humanity. I love that he can kind of give a little bit of humor and some personality to this role where he's uh, he really is this uh, kind of charming motherfucker um claudia cardinal what else can i say but she's amazing in this and uh this is leone at, at, at his peak this is leone again with some money this is leone suddenly able to kind of do the stuff that i mean i wish he'd been able to do all throughout his career i mean just suddenly having the budget to the, the, with this scope with this like shooting in monument valley i mean the idea that leone got to shoot in Leone monument valley mm-hmm by itself is kind of like, uh, you know, just an astonishing bit. It uses it every bit as well as uh, John Ford ever fucking did, as far as I'm concerned. Um, not that I'm uh, diminishing John Ford, but no, no, like, no, no. this is absolutely, everybody's good. And uh, just this astonishingly nuanced, while, while being hugely elemental in terms of the way it's really just moving these kind of very broad characters around. You know, they're not, they're, these are not deep characters. These are not, you know, kind of nuanced. These are very meant to be these uh, these almost elemental characters, these elemental figures, moving them around in this way that is somehow creates nuance through performance, but without necessarily needing like a kind of detail. Like I, you know, in summarizing it in terms of a plot, I mean, there's, there's not a lot of story here. I mean, this is three hours long, but it's not, you know, really you can condense the first like hour of this film into like three lines of dialogue. If you really wanted to, you know, there's not a lot going on in terms of story. It's all about mood. It's all about direction. It's all about performance and music. I also think this is Morricone's best score. This is just phenomenal, phenomenal work, and it must be experienced to be believed. Like I saw this film the first time, kind of hearing like, "Oh yeah, I've heard it's really good. I want to watch it," and just it enveloped me. Um, I mean, this this is just an astonishing piece of work, as far as I'm concerned. It hits me in my pleasure center. I almost can't um, even talk about it, <laughs> like, rationally, you know, yeah. because I understand that there are issues with this film, but I just love it. I love it dearly. Um, it's it's uh, one of the greatest. It, it might be my favorite film we've ever talked about on this podcast. Um, so, yes. Paul? I don't know where to say anything where Daniel didn't already say it. <laughs> it might be the best film I think I've ever watched. Nice. And, and not just the best Western I've ever watched. But uh, I don't know. It has this way of dragging everything out and being like, it, it takes a long time for things to happen. This is like the I, this is like the epiphany of a slow burn. And But there was no time ever where I felt like I should skip through this. Everything about the film, you kind of just hung on to. Every little thing. Uh, it, it was beautifully done. Great actors. I don't understand like how I didn't watch this earlier. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was just one of these things. I was like, "Hey, is that Charles Bronson?" Like, "Oh, hey, is that the other guy?" I'm like, "Oh, is that Henry Ford?" Like, "Holy fuck!" Because <laughs> I I got into watching like not, not even heard about the film. Like I've heard the title, 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and I, I, I just watch the film randomly, and I'm like, "Well, holy shit!" Like, I'm just kind of <laughs> blown away. Like, I, it was, I had a, I was like, I can't wait to talk about this film. And then I went, I don't know how to talk about this film because it's really good. <laughs> like, it's one of those deals. So yeah, no, it's a great film. I think Daniel, uh, you, you sort of hint upon that this this film does this really exquisite job of melding visuals. Uh, performances and music together like as one sort of cohesive thematic kind of thing like it it's all intertwined so much that you can't really separate anything in this film it's like all sort of fits together like a puzzle and he does it so easily too like it just it seems so simple and clockwork but at the same time it it's so interwoven like well can i can i speak about that for a second sorry to interrupt yeah. you but um Go ahead. I, had, I had some thoughts about this while i was re-watching it this weekend or this week one of the things that you, know, you think about something like the grand duel where um and a lot of the westerns we watched this this week like going through all these other spaghetti westerns is kind of give me a little bit of the context and vocabulary here where a lot of what they would do is they would take kind of this this one piece of music and then like kind of play it over and over again through the film and kind of use it in different ways in terms of basically just we didn't have the money to write 45 minutes of music so we wrote yeah five minutes of music it's brilliant we're going to reuse it five times leone with Morricone kind of then uses that in this film and uses it to his advantage where what he does is he uses the pieces of music as light motif right so he's um, essentially every character has their theme. And so when they're kind of ascendant, you suddenly get that little piece of theme that goes along with that character. And so what you get orally is you kind of get this kind of this, this almost battle of who's ascendant at any given time based on what piece of the score you're listening to. And particularly if you've listened to the score as many times as I have, then suddenly the music almost exists by itself. Like I don't even think of this with the characters anymore. I just think of it as like this, these gorgeous pieces of music that I just love listening to for me, you know, so when you hear that piece of harmonica, by the way, I have a, I have a little anecdote about that piece of harmonica music. So remind me to come back to that later. Um, When you hear that harmonica come in, you know that you're then you're either now watching Charles Bronson or you're about to see Charles Bronson, but you know that suddenly he's the important thing you're supposed to be looking at in the scene. You know, that mm-hmm. he's the important like kind of element that's coming in the way that the, the shooting works, the way that Leone shoots these characters. It's very much, we're just looking at their faces. There's not a lot of dialogue in this. There are long sequences mm-hmm. where really you're just listening to the score and watching dudes look at each other, <laughs> which yeah. sounds like, how could that, possibly be interesting but what that does is it'll like he's he's cast these minimalist actors who are completely able to portray this kind of emotional reality and kind of put themselves in this world without ever distracting you from it so i mean it really he really is trusting his actors to just give it their all but look like they're not giving anything at all that's really what works and it's really the um really the four you know, Bronson, Robards, Cardinal, and Fonda. You know, really, Cardinal is the key to the film, and I hope we do talk a lot about um, Claudia Cardinal here. But um, I think I think this is, um, I mean, it's just, it's just astonishing in the way that, like, you look at this, and it's so obvious what he's doing, and yet it works so well because it's just so well executed. Like, there's no, I mean, you really could cut this down to an hour. Like, I mean, this, this could almost be a 45 minute TV movie if you were, you know, really just like dedicated to just cutting it down into what's actually happening. What happens doesn't matter so much. It's why it happens and who it happens to Mm -hmm. and the tone that's set. 
Um, I would love to see this on the big screen at some point. This is this is one of those like if if this ever shows up at a big screen near me, I will see it. That is, there's no question. Nice. Yeah. Um. The, the, it's interesting with the themes here. It's everyone has their theme, and then there's variations of everyone's theme throughout too. So different moods comes out. It comes out a bit different. Like at some points, harmonica's theme comes out a bit more sinister. Uh, and at certain points when you know something really bad's going to happen, you get the end with the final confrontation between Frank and, and Harmonica where their themes merge. Like they've slowly been kind of intertwining throughout the film. And then finally they're both like at the forefront, both as loud as one another in the final theme. And they're both finally, you know, head to head, face to face. And it's it's just done so well, and you're right. It's it's so simple and so obvious and so on the nose, but at the same time, you don't give a fuck because it just makes the fucking hair stand up in the back of your neck. Like it works on me every time. Like just total goosebumps every time that scene starts. You see Frank off in the distance by the building, and then you see fucking Bronson's face just come right into frame, just as <laughs> just as that ding starts uh, the electric guitar starts going so uh should we talk about uh, henry fonda a little bit uh uh first i'll just uh, get uh paul's thoughts on 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 what he thought of the music yeah I, you guys are just doing a good job without me <laughs> i love it i actually think it's really weird because they really play up harmonica's music and even though you kind of already figure he's a good guy it really gives you a bad guy vibe like you know like it gives you like it's like really weird how they do it and it's almost like i'm watching i guess i watched jaws so goddamn much that when you kind of hear a score yeah based on a character you think oh shit this is gonna happen now and it gives it gives me that vibe you know in in the while watching it but i love how that fact like they already you guys already mentioned this but like they all everyone has their own little theme and 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 in the how they play apparently morricone wrote some of this or most of it before the film was even made yeah based they actually wrote rewrote and then based some of the scenes off the music that's uh that's generally how uh, leone and morricone work together um he had morricone write the, like he gave basically gave this is what the story's about write the music and right. then he would come back with the music and Leone would start to change the script around and sort of meld it around the actual musical cues. Mm-hmm. So you find that here. Apparently Morricone actually did write music for the boat 11 minute opening scene where there is no music at all because he realized it didn't work. Right. Uh, so then you have this drawn out 11 minutes or so where these three uh, bad guys are waiting for Charles Bronson to show up on the train, and it's all just environmental sounds building up the tension. You know, I was going to say it's amazingly uh, the tension in that was amazing. The yeah. whole, the, the whole, all the way to the first three, the first shots are fired. It's like, wow, I can actually feel this in my gut a little bit. The, it's amazing tension. Uh, apparently, like, because well, like you were saying, they build so much off body language and and just set design and visuals and music. And there was only 16 pages of script for the whole film. And it's a three-hour film, basically. It's like, oh, okay, okay, there you go. And, like, I mean, you guys are right. I mean, you could have condensed this into an an hour and 20-minute film because there's just – there's so many slow burns and there's so many non-dialogue moments. Uh, Apparently, because of certain cuts, there's actually more to the film that we lost that that they never put back in, which is just insane. I was like, okay, make it six hours. That's great. But (laughs) – So far, everything about this film is hitting top notches for me. 
Yeah, uh, Bernardo, uh, just a quick thing on the script there. Uh, Bernardo Bertolucci w- did the original script for this, and then when Leone and Argento got a hold of it, they pared it down, basically. So they, 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 basically, they basically did what a good writer does for a novel, right? They basically, you, you keep going over and over it and chopping it down to its sort of mm-hmm. basic bits, you know? And that's what they did here. But, uh, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's jump over to, uh, Henry Fonda there, uh, Daniel. Just, uh, one piece about the, um, that, that opening sequence, which is mm-hmm. obviously, I mean, brilliant. Probably the most interesting thing for me is that the first bit of score you hear is harmonica's theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you see harmonica and he's like, like it's, it's not actually diegetic sound because, you know, it's really the score, but it's a, uh, you know, kind of in the universe, it's meant to be like him playing the harmonica. So the way that we're introduced to the score is through harmonica playing his harmonica. Right. So, uh, which I think is an interesting element of it, um, particularly for this kind of the Leone Marconi collaboration where the score is so important that we do get this like long sequence where it's really just like flies buzzing and like a, a mill, a windmill kind of turning and that sort of thing. Um, I think that's, uh, I mean, it's brilliant because it's utterly compelling. And yet, if I just describe to you what's happening, it's like a fly lands on a dude's face. Yeah. You know, like, like there's no, there's no sense of that's something that we should really care about. Henry Fonda, holy fuck. This and uh, 12 Angry Men are my favorite Henry Fonda performances. Uh, no question. Um, and so different performances uh, yeah. from, from those two films. This is a film that it plays on his image as a good guy. I mean, I think that, Maybe that's overstated, right? Because we kind of think of Henry Fonda as this, you know, kind of morally just guy and this, like, you know, big, big hero of everything. And yet uh, here he gets to play the bad guy for kind of like his one big villain performance. And I think that certainly it's played for shock value in that first sequence, which I kind of described uh, because it is a, a really important moment in cinema history. At the same time, I think that in a way he gets to use his charm he gets to use that kind of hero figure kind of quality in his uh, performance here he gets to kind of have that as well the rape sequence for instance where he's Mm -hmm. almost charming where he's almost like yeah of course you know this is the thing you know um his death scene which is uh just it's almost heartbreaking the way he dies right you know because Mm -hmm. uh, of uh the way that uh, he kind of realizes what's happened and he realizes what he's done and um you know he kind of accepts it with his own his own kind of sense of honor, right? I mean, he's a hugely complicated, compelling character. Henry Fonda just imbues it with this kind of moral shades of gray kind of thing. Even this guy who murders a small child in his first scene in the film, yeah, we get a sense of some kind of shades of gray. We get a sense of like, this is what life on this frontier is like. This is what this life is like. This is what Jill's America is going to eradicate, you know, like that's, and that's, that's the central conceit of the film. That's the central conflict of the film. It's almost Henry Fonda and uh, Claudia Cardinal. I mean, it's it's not even really about Harmonica and Cheyenne. It's really about there's Frank's America and Jill's America. And which America do we want to live in? What are we really looking for? And when we're looking at a Western, which is a genre where ultimately looking at this sort of fantasy vision of like what the West was like, you know, what the reality of um, what, what are, what are fantasies of the frontier and the West and freedom and all that kind of like horse shit, because of course we don't talk about like the genocide of native Americans and the oppression of the Chinese and building the railroads and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But um, we bring that into this. We, we bring that perspective of um, this fantasy into this. And ultimately, 
Frank would be the hero of other films. Frank is our Frank is our kind of bad guy we we love to hate, but mm-hmm. here he's the guy we hate, but he's kind of the guy we want to love at the same time. And I think that that's totally down to Henry Fonda's performance. I think that he grounds this in such an emotional reality that we're allowed to both hate everything he stands for and kind of like him as a person. Leone kind of sold him on coming into the movie on the idea of, yeah, everyone's going to see that uh, the guy who just gunned down a child is going to, you know, it's going to pan to the face of American hero uh, <laughs> Henry Fonda. Uh <laughs> And yeah, I mean, this is this wasn't the first quote-unquote bad guy he'd done, but yes, he was basically well-known as being Lincoln and the guy in yeah. 12 Angry Men and stuff like that, right? I mean, he, he very much had that sort of reputation for American moviegoers. So they do play off that. Um, and yeah, that's a kind of a, a thing everyone just hits upon these days, you know, like that's one of the first things. Oh, Henry Fonda's a bad guy. That's what makes this movie so important. No, uh, it's how he does it. It's the, it's the performance that that comes out of it that works. It really helps to watch this twice. I mean, it really mm-hmm. helps. Like you get the shock. I mean, and I'll, um, because I watched this, uh, my wife, Shanna sat next to me and watched uh, the bulk of this film. And <laughs> she got to this uh, because she watched a bit of the great silence with me. And, you know, we've seen, she watched a, a lot of these other films with me um, this week. <laughs> we got to the bit where uh, Henry Fonda shows up and the kid is sitting there and she's like, Oh, is this kid going to grow up to be the gunslinger? Is going to go kill the bad guys? <laughs> like she, she had that moment. Like, of course, this is the genre. Like we're going to cut to like 10 years later and he's going to be the new hero. And it's like, oh, just keep watching. Just keep watching. Mm-hmm. And then when Henry Fonda just out and out murders the, the blonde haired Moppet there, you know, it's a very, um, I mean, it's an important moment. I mean, I mean, it's a really dark fucking thing to do. To, mm-hmm. I mean, to just, I mean, one thing if he just died. You know, if the, if the if the kid just died in the gunfire, or whatever. But to have him just do it in cold blood, I think that's the essential. Like that sells almost a reality, almost like this is what this guy's life is like. This is what this world is like. This is what being the victim of these kinds of forces is like. And I think it's, um, you know, it's easy to kind of go, oh, it's splintered or whatever. It's you know, like oh man, look at how fucked up that is. But I think it works with the themes of the film. It works with this kind of idea of like, this is what we're trying to leave behind, you know, this kind of world. But this is the biggest thing about his performance that I got. I mean, he is a total piece of dog crap in this film. And he's so cocky about the fact that he's a total piece of dog crap. It's like, I'm totally just kidnapped. You killed your whole family. Gonna rape you too, but we totally could get married. Be awesome. I'd be a shitty fucking husband, whatever. Like he's like that. But the one thing that I, that I did get out of his performance, or the whole film in general, is he wasn't always like this. This is mm-hmm. how he became doing the job he had to do. And that's the one thing. It's like, he's like, yeah, totally wasn't going to kill the kid. Yeah, he was going to let him. Mention, I was going to, like, totally wasn't going to do that. But then you had to go and say my name, so, you know what I mean? He he has humanity in him still, but he, he knows exactly how to shut it off to get the job done. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, he's basically like the Iceman. If, at this point in time, like he's the he's the trained killer. He's basically a mob. He's he's playing a mobster hitman mm-hmm. in a western. Yeah, but he's you know yeah because he he you're you're right. He does have basically an established history of leaving some people alive during his uh, his crimes. And yeah, in any other western, that kid would grow up to be the one who finds Henry Fonda and kills him. Uh, although uh, Henry Fonda was sixty three when he when he was uh, when he uh, starred in this film. Uh, you you wouldn't wow. know it by looking at him, but he no, was not at all. Jesus yeah. Christ! But yeah, he he does play this character who 
Uh, and it's one of the big themes, I think, of, of his character as well. Like, it's it's kind of the big arc is he, he has become this really cold, evil motherfucker over the years. And he's trying to escape that. He's trying to better himself and become a quote-unquote businessman with Morton. And that's why he sort of uh, teamed up with him. He's trying to basically deny what he really is. He's trying to be something different. And by the end of the film, he goes full circle to the realization, I think, that he was always going to be this scumbag and he can't escape that. And he kind of accepts it at the end. Like he kind of comes to some sort of little bit of redemption. Like he comes to some sort of peace of knowing, okay, it's all right. Uh, I got what I deserved and I can sort of die living with it. You know, <laughs> as, as weird as that sounds. Well, he kind of nods. Like, yeah. I mean, like literally, so harmonica puts the harmonica in his mouth. And then, you know, there's this moment of like, okay, all right. Now I know who you are now. Yeah, I get it. You know, yeah, Touché. fuck you. Well, I mean, you know. <laughs> Actually, the biggest bit, bit of dialogue where it, it, it does show a little bit of that that I found is like, he's like, he's like, no, I'm a, I'm a fucking, I'm a gunslinger. I'm a killer. I do this and, and I'm never going to be like uh, my boss because I'm just not that guy. You know, and he's like, yeah, he's talking civilly. I mean, I love the fact that uh, Harmonica saved his life like five times in the film. It's like, I love that. Mm. That's great. He's like, it's not going to be the same. I got to kill the son of a bitch, not you. I, I love I didn't, that. I didn't save his life. I just didn't let them kill him. Like, exactly. That's There's an a difference. Thing. There's a big yeah, difference. Yeah, yeah. And then they're just sitting in the bar. And Harmonica is just toying with him because he knows how to do that very well. Charles Bronson's performance is like, amazing uh, in this film. But, like, they were sitting there, and he's like, no, don't worry. Another, like, you know, 12 12 or a dozen more uh, your boss is going to come in and, you know, ruin it all. Don't worry about it because, you know, and he's like, yeah, men like us, we're a dying breed and things like that. Like, because he knows what he is. I mean, like, they both know what they are. They're trained. They're basically the hired killer, and they don't live in the world, the same world that businessmen live in. And, like, it's pretty well, it's pretty crazy. The dialogue that is in this film is doing exactly what it's supposed to. There's no pointless dialogue in this film at all. Mm-hmm. I actually remember bringing up the uh, the the, um, the late Gene Wilder. Uh, he, I was reading, watching a thing about him, and he said he goes, "You have to in a, in, a, in your script in your film, you have to go over it again and again with a sledgehammer and smack everything. If it falls over, get rid of it." Mm-hmm. And this is and that, that's exactly what they did with this film. If they went over the script, they went over it with a chainsaw and a hatchet and an axe and chopped off everything they didn't need, and it, they did it so well. You were going to say something there, Daniel. Uh, I lost it. It's fine. All right. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Um, oh, no, 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 no. I, I was probably going to expand on something that um, Paul said in 30 seconds and spend five minutes on it. So there's no reason to, to subject the audience to that. All right. I did want to sort of go into my sort of interpretation of kind of thematically overall what this is kind of connecting with to me. And I don't know if Leone was really sort of going with this in mind maybe in broader terms he was but i always kind of thought of this as like a sort of an end of the world mythology kind of film in a lot of ways i I look at it as kind of like connected to norse mythology in a certain way kind of a ragnarok kind of event where these different western archetypes like you look at how he populates this film one of the one of the scholars of of this film has written books on leone and stuff christopher frailing points out that there's over 300 references to classic westerns, no less than 300 at least, in this film. So all the imagery, all the iconic faces, all the motifs, everything that is brought to bear, the 
the broad archetypical characters that uh, our main characters represent in this film, they're kind of representative of the mythology of the Western. And I, I know you touched on that a little bit, uh, Daniel, uh, where the American Western is kind of like American mythology and the old West in general is kind of America's mythology and legends and fables. So this is basically taking the American Western itself as a genre, as a mythology. And these characters are kind of representative. If you connect it to the Norse kind of thing that I'm going for here, they're kind of gods and they're coming together for this end of the world kind of idea. Uh, most of the gods in Norse mythology knew they were going to die, but they mm -hmm. kept going anyway. And, the, and a lot of the characters in this film know that they're going to die, that there's no world for them after they finish their business with one another. And the ones that do survive are the ones that sort of herald the new world. And there were some of those in North, North mythology as well. After Ragnarok, there's new gods, a new world, and a new way of doing things. Jill is kind of representative of that. Uh, she comes from this world, but she's the one who transitions over to the new world and basically gives birth to the new world in the end of the film. And um, so I, I, I sort of feel like uh, it's kind of playing out like that in, in, in this film. The train, sort of like this banshee fucking scream of death. Like every time you see the train come and you hear that fucking screech where uh, the camera is under the train coming over it, you, you can notice it's connected to something really bad's going to happen. Someone's going to die. It's, it's almost uh, sort of a change in mood and a change over in how things are done in the film every time you see the train. So, yeah, all these characters... The ones that know they're going to die, they uh, they still do it. Like they they still go on, just like uh, the Norse gods did. They mm -hmm. uh, they know they're going to die, but they still fight anyway. Like Hermonica at the end knows that eventually he's going to be caught by the train. Like you see at the end where the credits go, he's got Banjo's corpse on his horse. They're walking off uh, ahead of the train where the where the train tracks stop, and eventually you know the train's going to catch up with him too. Uh, but it's already caught up with Cheyenne, and it's already caught up with Frank. And it caught up with Morton, too, as well, in, in a certain way. So, uh, yeah, that's just sort of what I kind of get from it thematically every time I sort of watch it. I, I just kind of feel like it's just kind of, uh, it's not meant to be taken uh, as super realistic as some spaghetti westerns are. It's much more uh, on a thematic, uh, mythological kind of level in a lot of ways. And that's sort of how I prefer to view it when I watch it. Well, the whole idea of leitmotif kind of comes from Wagner, right? You know, like it's it's that same sort of mm -hmm. idea. Like, it, you know, these are these are kind of these large scale elemental forces uh, kind of working against one another in in very broad ways, as opposed to um, you know, going back to uh, what you were saying about Jill in terms of like kind of what she represents in the film, uh, femininity. Okay, this is where my <laughs> this is where I get to talk about feminism, right? You know, um, you know so tune uh, out now. You. See you tune guys. Now it's fine. You know, go away. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, femininity in uh, westerns is so often uh, representative of um, civilization, right? It's it's so often uh, you know this became a cliche. This becomes like this thing where you know you got the hectoring wives telling the hero of the film, "No, don't go off and do the exciting thing that the audience wants to see." You know, mm -hmm. stay home and, and don't, you know, you don't have to fight. Let's do other things. Let's go on away or whatever. I mean, that goes back. I mean, My Darling Clementine, which, you know, worth mentioning just calls uh, Henry Fonda's an act, you know, mm -hmm. um, very much uh, kind of connected to that, very much has that as a kind of primary theme. And Jill absolutely represents this sort of domestication, this sort of like civilizing the West, getting rid of these kind of old style gunslingers. And, you know, we as Western fans, 
we want to see these kind of badass old gunslingers, you know, kill each other. We want to see this this action. But I think that um, in terms of understanding what the West is and what the West represents and what these people really really are, Leone is pointing us towards like Jill is is kind of the hero of the film. Like she comes in and she gets to be the person who is building this thing or helping to build this thing. She, she stands up for herself. She stands up for her own space. She is loyal to her even dead husband and these children that she's never met. She is very much on this wavelength of like wanting to build something good out of this, out of these deaths. And uh, she ends up being kind of the, um, the owner of this station that's going to kind of become this town of Sweetwater. I think that's really interesting. I think that's really compelling in the sense of like, if we're talking about um, Jill as a character, if we're talking about Jill as kind of an archetype, we're talking about what Jill represents. I mean, there's a track on the soundtrack called Jill's America, you know? And I think that's really fascinating in the sense of she gets her own space in the film. She gets, you know, it's, it's kind of her story for big chunks yeah. of this film. You know, she kind of shows up and then she goes to the haberdashery and then she witnesses this meeting between Harmonica and uh, Cheyenne. It's seen through her eyes. Like big mm-hmm. chunks of this film are really seen through her eyes. Thematically, philosophically, politically, like what is this film trying to say? We end up with this, you know, it's a good thing. It's a good thing that this town is being built it's a good thing that law and order is being established and that the old gunslingers are going away despite the fact that we might think it's fun to kind of watch this kind of watch the violence and watch this sort of like frontier justice ultimately as much as we like someone like uh harmonica his style of justice is not the way for us that is not the way we should live and i think jill's america stands as a stark contrast to that and I think that's important yeah. in terms of the themes of the film. Both Cheyenne and Harmonica are there to basically help Jill fight the battle to make that change. Right. But they both they both know they're not long for this world. Like they're the have nothing to offer her. Like as as far as having a life afterwards. Uh, I mean, I mean, McBain, our, our, our kind of our kind of the elder McBain, is um, yeah. portrayed as. I mean, he's a good man. You know, he yeah. he. Traveled to New Orleans, he met this prostitute, he fell in love, he agreed to marry her. You know, we never get any sense that he was judging her for that or anything, you know, like uh, certainly Frank judges her for that. Frank treats her like shit because of that. You know, he wants to introduce, he wants her to be his blushing bride. Like that's what he wants out of his life. And he wants to share this like wealth that he's about to have with this like wonderful woman that he's met. We talk about how terrible it is that the young boy is killed, but I mean, the fact that McBain himself is killed is just as much of a tragedy because he has, he's built this thing. He saw ahead of time. He saw where the world was turning and built a, a life in advance for himself. And then was so close to having it. And then because it got in the way of the profit motive, he got to be killed like that. And that's, that's almost a central tragedy for me, you know? Yeah. And the the funny thing is Morton didn't want, them killed. He he was uh, he was mad that he actually that Frank and his gang went uh, went ahead and killed them all. And he, they were just supposed to scare them off. But Frank again, it goes back to he can't deny his own nature. He ends up killing them because that's what he does. Also, you there's early on there's a scene where um, they're on the train and Frank hears a noise and quickly turns, drawing his gun, mm-hmm. basically. 
and and even then you kind of get the sense that he's never going to change. He's always going to be that guy who's on edge when he when he hears a large large noise. He he might look like a businessman, but he's going to turn around and point his gun at you. So he, he's kind of he's kind of like uh, those characters in um, Death Rides a Horse. Those criminals who you know they they've ended up bettering themselves, but in the end, uh, they're still the guy with the uh, deck of cards tattooed on their chest that uh, has a gun in the bottom of their drawer. You know. Uh, can we chat about uh, Claudia Carnal and her performance? Uh, for mm-hmm. me? I love her in this movie. Obviously, she's gorgeous. Can we? I mean, she's fucking gorgeous. Well, she, she was she was picked because she looked like a uh, younger Raquel Welch. Uh, the, the originally the yeah. idea was, uh, well, we should bring Raquel Welch in, and Leonia was like, no, she's she's too old for the role. We we want someone a bit younger. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's why they picked her. Right? I I kind of always thought like, oh yeah, you know, I'm sure she was in like kind of a handful of things, and kind of you know. Claudia Carnal has had a 50-year career, mm-hmm. a 60-year yeah. career almost. Like, I mean, her most recent acting credit is 2014. She's still alive. Like she, in, in her first role was in 1958. Like this is yeah. astonishing. I am definitely going to go and look at some of her other films. I was reading her like Wikipedia entry and going, "All right, need to see that. Need to see that. Need to see that." Um, rewatching her in this uh, this week, she has the line which I think is really compelling, where she says, uh, "You know, to uh, Harmonica, you don't look like the type to uh, you know take pity on uh, old widows, the helpless old widows." And then there's a beat, and then she kind of says, but I don't exactly look like a helpless old widow. And no, you fucking don't. She is yeah. fucking badass. She makes her own decisions. She is really taking over this film, and she's the center of this film. She's the heart of the film, not just in terms of what she represents, which I've, I've chatted, chatted about a little bit, but in terms of her performance, in terms of who she is and who the character is and who the actress is. I mean, you know, you, you think about, like, Charles Bronson and Jason Robards and Henry Fonda and then the woman, you know, the girl. She holds her own against all these guys. And I think really yeah, she's is is absolutely the equal of any of them, if not the better of any of them. I, I think she's astonishing in the film. Yeah, she she definitely holds her own in it. Like she's there's there's not a weak performance between any of the leads, but she more than holds her own with all of them. And I mean if this was a different spaghetti western you know, if this was a lesser spaghetti western, she would be, you know, more of a bit player, as we've seen in a lot of spaghetti westerns that we've uh, watched for this series. Well, I mean, that... even even films that he did, this is different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I was going to say, like, I mean, it's not even because of, you know, just him. I mean, he's guilty of it, too, making women just, you know, background high candy. That's it, the end. And he changed his direction in this one, definitely. Yeah. For her. Uh, yeah, he used... He used uh, like in the in the dollars trilogy, he basically used women as background uh, characters to look at in part of like comedic scenes of uh, rough gunslingers walking in on women in bass. Oh wait, he did that in this film as well, but uh, it, it, you know it doesn't have the same effect. You know, it's not it's not well, used as a joke. Part, as part of that's direction and part of that's performance. Mm-hmm. You know, she gives it. I mean, even though I mean, clearly that's like, oh, I'm in the bath and I'm sexy and this is yeah, I'm, I'm eye candy in this moment. She gives it a humanity, and she she is able to portray next to Charles Bronson like, what the fuck are you doing here? You know, well, they don't really um, they really don't focus on it too much, surprisingly either. When they no, kick I it, mean, they didn't show it too much either. No, no, I mean, you know, there's no there's no real nudity in this uh, either. That, that's the number um, one problem with the film. I mean, what? <laughs> what was I saying? I'm sorry. I mean, it's worth talking about the rape sequence. Um, because, uh, you know, it, it would be easy to watch that sequence out of context and go, 
oh, well, this is just kind of a romantic love scene, right, between, like, two people. But in context, in terms of what happens before and after and who we know this character is, she's playing this guy. Yeah. And he knows she's playing him, and she knows he knows she's playing him, but he, neither one of them cares. Like, this is, this is what, I mean, this is unfortunate, but real. This is what so many women had to do to survive in this kind of world. There's someone with a gun. There's someone you have no recourse except, okay, fuck him, give him your pussy, and uh, he'll uh, take what he wants and... Uh, maybe let you live. <laughs> maybe let you live. You know, th- this is what she has to do to survive. And she's, like, nibbling on his ear and kind of nibbling on his shoulder and kind of, like, acting like she likes him. And that's... It's all performance. And it's all performance of Jill. It's not Cardinal's performance. It's Jill's performance. And I think mm-hmm. that that comes across... I mean, Frank is such a nasty fucker. I mean, he's literally like playing like the telegraph on her back, you know? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's sitting there and he's like tell, telling her she's a whore and he's telling her, oh yeah, I know who you really are and all that sort of thing. And he's belittling her and demeaning her while she's, you know, taking what she has to in order to survive. And it just, it makes him even more disgusting. Even while, you know, this is a moment where like, he is showing this kind of tenderness because I think he does have some kind of feeling for her, but it's the, it's who this character is that this is the only way he can do that is through this like use of violence, which then uh, connected to like the relationship she has with Cheyenne, which is much more honest and authentic. I mean, there there really is a, like an an attraction between those characters. And I think I kind of get a little bit from, um, (laughs) from harmonica as well. I can kind of see there's a little bit of a, threesome kind of going on there, but you know, we can, we can not necessarily have to read it that way, but, uh, you know, but you definitely look at Cheyenne and Cheyenne and she have a real relationship buddy. And I yeah. mean, you could absolutely see if Cheyenne had not um, taken that bullet and was slowly dying at the end, he very well could have stuck around. He could have become this, you know, farmer. I th- well, he, I think he kind of wanted to, but he knew he was going to die anyway. So he's like, yeah. Eh, yeah. well, I guess I can't. I, I yeah. thought that was the funniest scene is it when she goes, you know, you're a pretty handsome man when you shave. And I'm like, what did he shave? Yes. She <laughs> had exactly the same fucking facial hair. I'm like, oh, yeah, it was yeah. pretty good. Yeah. But, yeah, he's – yeah, Cheyenne's kind of the uh, – he's the classic sort of uh, roguish uh, bandit uh, prince hero kind of character, you know. He has um, this amazing humility and honesty and humanity about him. And I, I look at him half the time as a good comic relief. Yeah, like he 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 breaks everything up and makes you and and you can assimilate everything after that because he just he tones everything down in the right way. Mm. And I mean, he he knows after after taking the bullet, like his his character is essentially faded, like uh, harmonicas, not to basically be able to deal with the new world and survive in Jill's new world. In the case of Cheyenne, though, it's because he's he doesn't understand. The new world that's coming doesn't understand Morton's world that's coming, you know, with the train. He makes a mistake and underestimates Morton. Like, he, he goes around calling him, he makes a joke out of him at first, Mr. Choo Choo, you know, this crippled, scaredy cat who, who who can't lift a gun to save his life. But then he ends up being the one who uh, gut shot uh, Cheyenne. And, yep. and, and so Cheyenne's kind of a tragic hero in that sense that he, he can't see the bigger picture around him like he he underestimates uh morton where harmonica sees the bigger picture from the beginning harmonica is those 
my only path is find Frank and kill him, and then my life is basically over anyway. After that, there's there's nothing really for me, and there's there can be nothing for me because I've been so cold and dead since uh, Frank stood my brother up on my fucking shoulders and held me there while sticking a harmonica in my mouth. You know, like that 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 kind of thing is basically killed him inside for the rest of his life. It's all been about revenge, so. Well, yeah, yeah. you always have that thing. I guess technically, I killed my brother. Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, it's a, it's a fucking, it's a hell of a thing. Frank is a pig, yeah. and the thing is, though, I was actually surprised because, I mean, this obviously was a while ago when this happened, but I guess it takes so long for the railroad to move forward. I was actually expecting more of a eastern United States scene where that happened in. More so than way, because they were still in the West, you know. Obviously, when 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 he killed his brother, and I'm like, okay, well, you know. Time well, we don't know what bit. Frank's background is. We don't know that he was working with uh, Morton at that point. I mean, that could have just been. Well, he, else he's he been. Doing. I mean, it said he did say in the film like he's been clearing the track the whole way, you know, since no. they started. Um, I think the one thing that I like about the film so much is it has an Eastern. Wet American side to this film more so than the that stereotypical Western feel. Like it has these people moving through from the east. They're not already westernized. You know, yeah, I mean? well, it, it gives it this freshness too. Well, you see the, the sort of people have already been there. Uh, like the uh, the coach driver, he, he he's he's openly aggressive towards the, the railroad people who are who are moving in on his territory. He's like that's goddamn oh, no. railroad, and, and, he, and he, you know, he, he's. He's kind of like the dying kind of um, uh, energy and in, uh, in, uh, rowdiness of, of the West in that little mm-hmm. scene where where he's he's driving through with his with his uh, uh, cart, you know, un- uncontrollably. You know, you know, he's he's basically not really proving any points, but he's he's just sort of in his moment there. Yeah, the best thing is too is like I mean, <laughs> I mean it, it takes you out of this Western thing and puts you someplace else because even the guy that yelled at him has an accent that was like. Reminded me of Richard Dreyfus from fucking Jaws. I mean, like he, the guy who yelled, like, "Hey, well, it didn't look Western, it didn't sound yeah. Western." It was this Eastern influx that was coming in and pushing out and killing the West. I mean, Once Upon a Time in the West was was you know it's it's that was the swan song. As the train came in, it was killing off the the Wild West, and and you know, chronologically, it also killed off the Western, mm-hmm. film, you know, industry. So, I mean, it was pretty, this, I mean, this is a, this is, I mean, what I mean, a way to go. I mean, for God's sake. way, things. this is kind of the last great Western, right? I mean, you yeah, know, not, what a way I mean, to not, go, not, though. there were a few, I mean, I'm not saying it's like literally the last, because there's still I know, a, I, Rush know. Hour was pretty fucking amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I mean, that was cool. <laughs> yeah. Shanghai Noon. <laughs> Oh yeah, Shanghai Noon. Oh yeah, <laughs> pretty fucking epic. I'll tell you. No, well, I, I, I think I think the the classic western this kills off is we're thinking of like the John Ford type classic western. I mean, after this, you had this period. Uh, although the western genre was going into a steady regression at the same time, or not a regression, but it was going downhill as far as popularity, especially with the blockbusters and stuff coming in the seventies. But you, you still did have, of course, all these sort of revisionist Westerns that were influenced by the spaghetti Western. And that was yeah. the kind of stuff you saw in the seventies, right? You know, I mean, you still get like high plains drifter is still coming. I mean, true grit is still coming. I mean, you, you know, it's not like it's dead, but this Isn't is Billy Jack kind of technically the... a Western. No, yeah. I don't. Well, yeah, I guess no. it is. It, it's definitely a very, Influence anyway. 
basically the Western as this like behemoth of box office as like the top, you know, three of the top 10 movies every year are Westerns, you know, yeah. sort of thing that goes away basically around this time. And I think that that has a lot to do with the way that we envision the way, I mean, basically the way that we envision the West as our, as our history and the way that like this kind of uncomplicated relationship that we had. And I think that what the spaghetti Westerns do, and particularly Leone's, I mean, Leone's, particularly this film does is kind of make us examine that, make us examine what is it that we're really glamorizing and looking at this past, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why, like, you know, basically the first 10 minutes of this film is like, we're just going to do High Noon, but we're going to do it from the point of view of the three guys who are, like, coming to kill the guy, and uh, it's over. Like, th- like this, this, this kills High Noon, basically. You know, this kills the entire... <laughs> 50s western genre in the first 10 minutes and then says okay let's move on from this let's do another story mm-hmm. and then look at like this real history and look at you know what is it that what was built in the modern american west what did that mean and are we really justified in glamorizing this you know frank i mean frank could be a hero of another western i mean yeah he kills he kills a young kid okay take that out he's mm-hmm. just he's he, he sabata you know, we talked about it uh, a couple weeks ago. You know, Sabata is um, every bit as, <laughs> in terms of what he's done, every bit as evil as Frank is. You know, you, you got to think in his past, he's killed a bunch of fucking people. And yet we kind of see him as the hero because like, well, it's all fun, about perception you know? meets reality. I mean, who are you killing? Why are you killing? I mean, like, I mean, cause technically you can murder people every day, but if they consider you killing bad guys, you're still a good guy. You know, like, you know, yeah. I mean, depending on how you do it, it's all about perception meets reality. And this film yeah. is just, it does that. It makes you question everything twice. You know what I mean? Um, I want to question who the hell built that train station because that is like the worst dock I've ever seen in my life. In the, in the beginning, I'm like, how do you even walk on that without falling over? Yeah, that's that amazing. Like, it was like, it was like boards just kind of like, oh my God. Yeah, it was like also, planks, but. Yeah, I was like, but it gives you this arid dryness <laughs> that like all these boards are even just warped on the heat and the dry because, you know, all the, the big rushing movement of water is a big you know, thing in the film, trying to get the water this. And um, I keep, I keep, I want to say, I keep on going to say Moretti instead of uh, Mord. You know, like the, the, the uh, owner of the train station. I keep wanting to say his name wrong. But uh, like, he, I, I did love his, his passion and his role is great. He played that amazingly. That no one, I didn't think yeah. you guys mentioned that. I, I loved his acting. He fit the role perfectly in my perspective. This film is about dreams and what mm-hmm. you want your world to be. And he had his dream of just seeing the Pacific Ocean, and I thought I, it was great because he could he, you could see, and he did have this one um, fleeting moment there where he knew his all his dreams are fucked now too. Yeah, like it's not gonna happen. Like, and he probably isn't gonna live to see it now. And like that was a big moment too. I mean, like every everyone had their their that, that kind of like realization in the film that what they wanted, what they were planning wasn't going to fucking happen. Yeah. Everyone had their little moment in there. It was pretty interesting. Yeah. There is a best league plans element to this, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Boys and men. Yeah. Afghanically. Yeah. Robbie Burns. Love it. Uh, I'll tell you what though. One thing I got to mention and no one will ever, uh, probably doesn't mention this epic stunt by the man who fell through a fucking roof onto his head. <laughs> and, yeah. That was, oh my God. He killed. And that's, uh, that was our friend, uh, Fabio Testi, by the way who was in For the Apocalypse, uh, he had an early minor role in this film. Uh, you, the only other time you see him is you see his face briefly in the auction scene, and he legit injured himself on that stunt, and no fucking kidding. 
Uh, yeah. The way he fell for that is like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's pretty obvious he fucking injured himself on that stunt. I was yeah. like, oh my God, that guy really died. Like, <laughs> this is insane. We just watched the snuff film right here in the middle of the Leon. I am completely fully erect now. This is happening. Well, yes. sadly, there is a parallel here. Uh, one person did die who is in this cast, and that was Al Mulock, who was a familiar face in a lot of uh, spaghetti westerns at the time, Canadian actor, who was apparently quite depressed. And on his first day of shooting, after he was done, um, and he was one of the one of the guys, along with uh, Jack Elam and, and Woody Strode, who uh, meet up with uh, Harmonica at the beginning of the film, he jumped out of his hotel room and... Uh, and died on the way to the hospital. I will suicide. have to use, uh, mention, you know, now that I've met many of you, I haven't met a, a Canadian that isn't bitter and angry and depressed. And what's wrong with you well, people? Well, when we have to sit there and, and look down south and see what's going on. I know. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> they, you, they don't do it to anybody. You, you wonder why we drink. Uh, God, I but, can't believe but, my, my, my country touches yours. Oh. <laughs> But yeah, um, apparently there there is a story. I don't know if there's any truth to it, but it, it is listed as trivia that uh, Leone had them uh, strip his costume off first before they carted him off to the hospital because they needed to save it for wardrobe. Uh, there Ooh. there is a story of that. Uh, Leone Leone did have a reputation be, for being kind of a ruthless, basically despot on on the set at times. Um, I believe that. I mean, you, yeah. you don't make a film like this without being a, a bit of that. Like that's. Uh, yeah, I mean, apparently Jason Robard showed up on his first day drunk, and 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 Leone just basically yelled to get tell tell him get the fuck off the set and come back when he was sober. Uh, apparently, they they worked together quite well after that, but uh, hmm. for a time there, yeah, there was. There well, was I mean, it, it always it always does when you when you have people coming in that you have to work with and they have to respect you and you have to fucking be the you know a dick in front of their face to let you know what they won't what you won't tolerate. You and of course, I mean? that, that's good. Yeah, and I mean, Leone didn't speak English, so he he probably had to make grand sweeping gestures and emotional outbursts to uh, try to get actors to realize what the fuck he was talking about in the first place. Anyway, you know, so <laughs> so he may maybe coming over and uh, and fucking slapping Robards in the face or whatever he had to fucking do, you know, to get Ooh. the point across. Yeah, ring his bell a little bit. He's good to go. Yeah. I'll tell you what. One thing I I did notice about the film, and then as I watched the film, I realized how important. And why they were doing it, but like all the noises, and they probably also because there wasn't much score going on in the beginning of the film because of that scene. But they're all, every noise in the film is super exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gunshots are even louder than in most spaghetti westerns. They're like thunderous fucking gunshots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, it, it plays on the atmosphere. And 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 the more I re- I watch the film, the more I realized how important it is. And to to the film, uh, like these atmospheres and the score and the sound and this, and how really I didn't realize it because I was so inept in, like just in, into the thing. But there isn't much dialogue. Mm-hmm. There isn't much of this, and but you you don't even notice it half the time. You think it's, it's you're just watching a normal you know everyday talky talky film, and you're not. It's pretty crazy the way the film stretches things out. Even though you know, yeah, there are these are long stretches where it builds up tension. <laughs> It builds up the tension so well that you don't notice how fucking long these scenes are going. Like, so you, you still think you're watching a re- regular length movie. Like, when I watch this, I don't feel like I'm watching a long movie necessarily. Mm-hmm. 
Like, because it sucks me in so much. Well, every time I watch one of the films on here, they're a little shorter than they're supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're... they're... I mean, we're, we're, we're basically 20 minutes into the film by the time you even see Frank, by the time you see Henry Fonda. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's... I mean, you know, we've got 11 minutes. 11 minutes of the film is this, like, basically dialogue-free yeah. sequence. And, you know, people talk about Leone and Tarantino for obvious reasons. Um, I was watching this film again and going, like, my God. <laughs> uh, P.T. Anderson saw this uh, before he did There Will Be Blood. Like, there's so much of this that feels very uh, reminiscent for me um, of another film I love. Um, you know, and uh, there, there are some real connections between that in terms of, you know, you watch the way that the uh, the workers are kind of building the railroad stuff and the building the town. And there's kind of luxurious shots of that. And you see all these men in the background just kind of doing all this action. But then you see like kind of these long sweeping shots of kind of the, the train coming and you see the, uh, you know, the, the, the way that the score is used to kind of underline this kind of emotional reality as opposed to trying to like really be about something that's literally happening on screen. It acts as a counterpoint and you go, yeah, this is, you know, there, there's, there's a very clear connection between there will be blood and uh, once upon a time in the West as well. Um, and that just, that just made me happy again. Cause that's another film <laughs> I just like love dearly. So nice. Go a little bit into the different versions here. Uh, there, there is a deleted scene apparently where, um, uh, you, you will notice, like, uh, about halfway through the movie, Harmonica shows up all of a sudden with, like, cuts on his face and stuff, and you're like, where the, where the fuck did that happen? There is a deleted scene where the uh, sheriff uh, and his and his uh, deputies are hired, basically, by uh, Frank and his gang to uh, uh, rough Harmonica up and try to run him out of town, which doesn't work. Apparently, uh, John Carpenter is, is such a fan of this film that he had um, Jill's theme play during his wedding with uh, Adrian Barbeau. Uh, oh, yeah, although you know uh, that mar- the marriage didn't last, so uh, he, I guess he can blame he can blame this movie now. Um, does have great tits though. Yeah, still does. Uh, mm-hmm. Paramount uh, cut this film down for its initial U.S. release to 140 minutes from uh, the the general range between uh, versions of this at the time were uh, 165 to 155 minutes or so. So you get an idea of how much of this was cut out for the initial American release. And apparently it was so chopped down that the movie just made no sense and didn't really play well with a lot of the American audiences and just didn't do well at all for quite a while. It wasn't until 1984 that the sort of widely recognized real version of this film finally played in the U.S. theaters. Um, it did very well every, pretty much everywhere else in like Europe and uh, internationally, right? But... Uh, in the U.S., they chopped it so much that it didn't. Uh, there is a 171 minute, I think it is. Uh, it's a 170 something minute. Uh, I think it's 71 minute Italian restored version that's out there somewhere. But apparently, most of the stuff in that is just maybe too long in some of these scenes, where some stuff just kind of drags a little, little bit farther. Like there's more, like there's more time with the fly on Jack Elam's face. You know, like a few extra, like, I think literally, like, a few extra minutes of that. There's a scene where you see, like, two little girls at the train station in the opening that was totally cut out, which I think is a good cut in, in the in the first place. You don't need the two little girls dancing around the train station. It just doesn't seem to make sense because it looks so fucking uh, isolated in the first place, you know? Like, it doesn't look like it's connected to a town or anything. 
most most of the versions you'll see are about uh, 165. As far as DVD and Blu-ray uh, versions out there to look for, uh, you can get what I have, which is the Paramount two-disc uh, collector's edition from 2003. Uh, there was a single disc in 2010. I, I would suggest you get the uh, collector's edition if you can find it, because there's uh, good commentaries on it, uh, a lot of good special features in the in the in the second disc. Uh, there was a Paramount Blu-ray in 2011. This is probably even more what you're looking for because it's got some new uh, additions to it, including uh, the American theatrical version and the restored Italian cut, if you're interested in that. So uh, budget for this was $5 million. I think it made it more than uh, back internationally, not so much in the U.S. Uh, although uh, Morricone's score here, this was his best-selling uh, score in his career. Uh, five million copies uh, sold worldwide. So, uh, yeah. I think it's his greatest score. I mean, I, I think I might have said that already. It's it's yeah. phenomenal stuff. I I actually listen to the score regularly. Like it's basically, if I get on YouTube, it it comes up my watch it again recommended feed because <laughs> I've listened to it so many times. I think it has like a million views, and I've probably like I've got like two thousand of those are mine. You know? so. Nice. We have anything else anyone wants to bring up before we get to final thoughts? Or uh... I'm good. Okay, uh, Paul, what are your sort of final thoughts on this one? The best western I've ever seen, and I thought the Great Silence was going to be hard to beat. Yeah, totally beat it. <laughs> <laughs> Just totally beat it. Um, this wouldn't have worked if they didn't have such great main character actors, mm-hmm. and because. I think you would you got everything would have got lost in translation if they didn't have perfect character design and the right characters did the job. You would because there's a lot of guys. You know, I I don't know how half the time they go, oh you know oh those are those men those are they all look like Western guys to me. I don't know like you know but mm-hmm. this this thing managed to do it and it has such many so many different angles and plot twists and things like this and it, it, it's just amazing. It's it's probably the best. It's one of the best. I'll say it again. It's one of the best films I've ever seen instead of just the best Western too. So nice. definitely check it out. Uh, you, Daniel. I, yeah, it's, it's phenomenal stuff. I think I've, I've kind of made my feelings on this film clear. Um, I actually own the one disc edition of this uh, just mm-hmm. because I uh, bought it for $2 at a, like a book and DVD sale somewhere at a library. $2. Many years ago, but uh, I'm uh, now planning on buying the two disc edition because I started looking into it and went, Oh, I might actually spring for the Blu-ray on this, so we'll, we'll see. I, I might, I might end up picking that up here. I will PayPal you two dollars for that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Of course, I, I echo what uh, my uh, two esteemed co-hosts have said. It is one of the greatest movies ever made. It, it would be in my top ten. I don't know where exactly I would place it, but. Uh, if if I was gonna like seriously list my top ten, but um, it, it's up there. It's probably even in the top five, honestly. It is my favorite Leone uh, western, and I think it's it boils down to the sort of physical and like emotional responses I have to it. Like it's just one of those movies that gets me every time, gets the goosebumps every once in a while, gets a little bit of water around the eyes when I hear a certain piece of music. It it just it just works. I mean, even scenes that seem like nothing when you first watch them and then you watch them again it's uh when jill comes to the train station and then uh she's getting ready to leave the town and then the camera pans up past the train station and you see the whole town it's almost like it's just foreshadowing that yeah she's the one who's going to uh make this new world you know in this uh, mythology or whatever and 
it's 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 great filmmaking like that that you don't really see in a lot of stuff anymore and it's it's a very uh, singular movie in that way even though it's highly influential at the same time so um uh, a great small moment i'll just mention this real quick um when she just sells when she says the line i just want to sell mm-hmm. you know? like in that that moment you see the defeat in her eyes and it's like like this is the like i wanted to build something here but no you know frank has yeah. beaten her and, and she's just chosen to give up rather than, you know, she's, she's trying to retire with dignity and yet like, it's, it's such the sad moment. And, uh, I just, I love that moment in the film when she's just, her performance is phenomenal right then. Yeah. But I don't think, um, I don't think, uh, we, we need to tell most people it's a classic. I mean, if, if, if you are listening to this and have not seen the movie yet, uh, what what the fuck are you doing listening to us? You should have been watching this movie before now. What are you doing with your life if you haven't seen this movie at least <laughs> right. you know, once? You know, uh, fucking crazy. But um, I watched it finally. Yeah, it's worth it. I mean, I look, just it's never, better, I never... late, better late than never. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's you know if you've listened to us this far. I mean, I'm sorry, I've given away like the entire film. Go watch it anyway. It doesn't matter. I've spoiled yeah. it for you. It'll still be brilliant. It doesn't matter. That's how good this film is. Well, yeah, that's like I'm saying. It's like the movie affects you on such a visceral and emotional level. Like they're they're spoiling the plot. Doesn't spoil the it's experience. It's almost pure cinema. It's almost yeah. this pure cinematic experience where it doesn't like you could watch this film with no dialogue and just listen to the music and watch the images. Mm-hmm. This could be a silent film, and it would still work. And I think that's—I mean, just—it speaks to the majesty and the uh, just how amazing this thing is. I—I'm just, you know, I cannot say enough good things about this movie. I love this movie. So usually, when we do one of these little series, we kind of give our thoughts on what our favorite movie was from watching all these movies. And I, I think we're all in agreement. This is like our favorite one to watch, and uh, I think we've. We really haven't picked a bad movie for this series. There, like you picked, they're all good ones. I mean, yeah. you know, the weakest. I mean, if like for the apocalypse is or um, death rides a horse. If death rides a horse is the weakest of the you know ones we watch, that says a lot, right? Yeah, you know. What was what was um, the weakest one for you so far? Death rides for uh, me. Yeah. Uh. I'd have to go sh- back and look at the list. I was sure you were going to say. Probably, I was sure you were going to say Sabato. Sabato was fun. I like it. Probably um, Django. Uh, Django. The, uh, the second Django film. Django I'd Kill. Yeah. Django Kill. Yeah. Um, not because I didn't like it, but just because it's kind of like it's it's receded in my memory. Probably the one I'll rewatch again most quickly is for the Apocalypse because I, I really thought that was fascinating. I think there's a lot mm-hmm. that I missed on that first watch. So yeah, that would that would probably be you know, but but there's not there's not a weak one in, in any of these. I mean, but if but if there is one, it's it's the the Django Kill one. That's probably the the weakest, the one that I'll probably eh, I don't know that I ever need to watch that one again. It was it was right. a nice watch, but it's right. not a, yeah, it's a one watch. Django Kill is probably mine too. Actually, I forgot we watched it. That's how much I didn't <laughs> know care for. I was gonna say Grand Duel, but then I was like, oh no, totally yeah, totally Django too. Never mind. Yep. Yeah, yeah, Django, Django Kill is is probably. Kill, I, yeah. I agree. It's probably the weakest one. Uh, uh, interesting enough, I think it it's the one that takes like the most risks and goes out there to a certain degree that it doesn't quite work as effectively well as a movie itself. You know, so yeah, I, I think that that also is probably the weakest one for me. Oh, now, now the other thing is now Daniel's uh, favorite Fulci film is no longer House by the Cemetery. 
<laughs> I mean, no, I I really liked For the Apocalypse. I mean, I really really loved that film. I I was I was astonished how much I loved that film. I actually want to read the short stories it's based on first before I rewatch yeah. the film because I'd be really interested in getting that perspective and then also uh, checking out the film again and kind of seeing what Fulcina's collaborators did with it. So, I mean, that was that was a real discovery for me. Like, I'm really happy. I mean, as much as I kind of enjoyed visiting a lot of these films, like that was the one where I went, holy shit. Shit, this is this is really doing something interesting. And like uh, Great Silence and Once Upon a Time in the West, it's a film based on personality. It's a film based on like these very particular people in this particular kind of world in this particular moment. And kind of asks us to consider that in this kind of very sparse environment. I mean, it's uh, this is this has been a. I mean, it's it's funny how like I feel like a lot of times I've had not as much to say about this series, but I think it's there's a lot of like ideas percolating underneath these things that um, we'll be kind of coming back to. And uh, it's been a great series. I mean, it's just been so much fun getting to watch mm-hmm. some of these. And the one thing you can definitely say in every film is they emphasize hardship and struggle. Every <laughs> single film is yeah. all about how hard this shit is and how much people were in pain and suffering. And it's like, damn, but that, you know, that's reality. And there is a huge reality to these films of how dirty and disgusting and hard and terrible that period of time was, but they made it through and they built something out of it. So pretty interesting. Yeah. So uh, this will be dropping in the first week of October, technically, but uh, October is officially going to be all horror. Uh, We've got some stuff lined up. Horror. Emphasis on the horror. Uh, we we got some bonus content already recorded and done up. Still got a little bit to go, and we have four official episodes. Uh, next week's episode uh, tentatively is going to be Night Train Murders, also Cemetery Man. Uh, we're going to be yeah. redoing we're going to be redoing that episode. Uh, Paul and I originally recorded an episode, but there were some technical issues and it went to shit. So uh, mm-hmm. we're going to get the chance to redo it and uh, have Daniel along for the ride this Yay. time. So it should be a lot more fun. And then we're going to have some episodes potentially of some special guests. Uh, we're thinking of theater the theater of blood and the skull uh, with uh, our friend James Murphy, and uh, we're also thinking on. The two Nosferatu films, the original and the remake from uh, Werner Herzog, and uh, hopefully get Jack Graham in with that one uh, if, if we could work out scheduling. And if not, we're still going to be doing those films, so uh, that's kind of where we're going to be at. And then, of course, we also have the... Uh, what, I'm trying to make a sort of a yearly tradition for this podcast, the uh, Lee Van Teeth Halloween radio show, So, and that's already recorded. So that, that should be the last episode for, uh, for this month. So uh, look forward to that, guys. And lots and, of bonus content as well. So. Yes, yes. Lots of bonus content uh, this, this month. Hopefully um, I'll get you some bonus content in the, when I'm at the Living Dead weekend. Yes, hopefully uh, our, man on the, uh, our man on location, Paul Romali, yep. will report. Uh, so that, that should be fun as well. So, Daniel, tell people where they can find you on the uh, interwebs. Uh, you can find me talking about uh, all these kinds of issues and everything else at uh, alwayspaceman.com. I uh, started out as a Doctor Who podcast, but it's way more than that now. Go check it out um, if you're so inclined. And uh, I do a... It's supposed to be weekly or bi-weekly, but it's, I've been really busy lately and I haven't had a chance to write anything. But I do a uh, column at originalpress.com, so you can check me out there as well. Cool. Paul, where can people find you? P.A. Brew News, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And then you can check out uh, paulrumaley.com and Oil Pities by P. Rumaley on Facebook. Yeah. 
Right on. And, of course, go to tmbdos.podbean.com. There you'll find uh, our official website where you can find all of our links to our iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook. Uh, go to the Facebook group if you want to get in touch with us. Join up. It's the best place to uh, leave comments and questions and interact with us and uh, have some fun little discussions. It's a small little group, but it's a nice, friendly little group, and there's some interesting stuff there every once in a while. And if you want your comments right on air, that's uh, where to leave them, basically, best place. Uh, we we uh, collect them there every week whenever there is something. And, uh, yeah, we try to respond to everything. We want your guys' uh, thoughts and opinions and your suggestions for films. Because uh, after after we do this uh, horror series, we're just going to be sort of doing whatever for, for a couple months to run out the year, I guess. Have some tentative plans, but, you know, nothing set in stone. Just some neat ideas and... Uh, Anything you guys want to throw in would be fun. And uh, I hope everyone listening uh, has enjoyed the Spaghetti Western series as much as we've enjoyed doing it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you both uh, for joining me throughout the whole thing. It was nice to have you throughout the entire series there, Paul. Uh, So that was good. And uh, so uh, thank you, gentlemen, and thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Adios.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For past episodes, links to the host's other stuff, and links to various podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find our iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook links. Please join our Facebook group, as this is the best way to get in contact with us and to keep up to date with what's coming up on the podcast. We also can be found as part of the Oi Spaceman family of podcasts at oispaceman.com, where you can find various sci-fi-themed podcasts about Doctor Who, Red Dwarf, Firefly, and classic sci-fi novels. If you decide to subscribe to us through iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a star rating and a review. Thank you. Drive through.